Merry Christmas, beloved. Uh, such a, a good thing to gather on these special milestones throughout the year um, and commemorate what God has done. He's actually done in history. And so tonight, um, I'd ask you to just kind of step back a couple weeks with me in time as I walk from my bedroom across the house um, and I'm coming into the other side of the room. Um, there, there's a bathroom on the other side of my house and they're splashing and squealing. And this is a normal evening. Um, and so I walk in, and of course, there's a mess to behold. There's water everywhere. And I look down and say, time to get out, crazy mermaid. It's time to get out. We've got to get ready for bed. And so she begrudgingly looks up and gets out. And I'm holding the towel as my daughter steps over the side of the bathtub, but she looks up at me, and she pauses for a moment with some hesitation. She looks down, and she looks back up into my eyes and says, Daddy, do I have boy hair? And I look at her and say, no, you have beautiful hair. And she says, no, 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 not, not this hair. And she looks down at her legs. I think, this is not something that should happen for at least another decade. <laughs> Who said you have boy hair? And she tells me a boy's name. And I know this boy is in her kindergarten class. And in that moment, it all kind of rushes in, like my heart starts pounding, adrenaline flowing. Tell me his name. I know this kid, and it's happening. I'm going to have to fight a kindergartner. <laughs> but here's the thing, I know this kid's dad. I'm going to fight this kid's dad too. <laughs> and I know this kid's dad has a lot of friends, and I'm going to have to fight all of them as well. And it's kind of like the Kevin Bacon rule that now they're going to have friends, and I'm going to be fighting them too. And next thing you know, tomorrow I'm going to fight the world. So I better eat a good breakfast. And I settled down and realized, okay, that's not an option. God loved the world in this way, that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And here I am, wanting to take on the world so that I can keep my child from experiencing any pain. But then here is God the Father, knowingly sending his son to be vulnerable and to face certain death. As those two worlds collide, we should feel that as we experience the story of Christmas, that there's a father who would send his son knowing that this means death. Why? How can this be? So turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, this gospel, according to John, uh, we started last week. And so as we, as we began, we, we took note of the fact that when a character is introduced into a story, it's really important to see how that character is introduced because the first time you experience or encounter a character, it sets the stage for how are you going to view that character for the rest of the story. And every interaction, everything they encounter, the way you encounter that is going to be set by how you were introduced to that person. And so we look at this gospel. This is the story of Jesus, everything he said and what he did. And we say, how is he introduced? What does John do in his gospel to introduce Jesus? And he starts by saying, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. This massive claim that word or Greek logos is this idea that Jesus is actually reasoning. He is meaning. He is life. He is power to create. Nothing came into existence except for what he created through him. And so Jesus, John says, as he introduces this character, he says, you need to know everything you're about to encounter in this story, everything that Jesus did and everything he said, you need to know as he does all of that, that he is God himself. 
This is God that you're experiencing here. God himself. And so that's how he explains to us who Jesus is from the get-go. And now we read on, and let's look at the second part of his prologue here. In verse 10, read with me. John 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. Hear this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Word, the eternal Son of God. That God, having always existed with the Father and also the Spirit, Son, Father and Spirit, all together, and yet the Son of God steps into creation. He becomes flesh. The Jesus actually stepped into what he created and became like us. God, fully God, and yet now fully man as well. And this weird thing that we, we call in theological terms, the hypostatic union, that somehow this one person is the God-man, fully God and fully man in this combined thing here. That he doesn't neglect either side. He is fully God and he is fully man, but he did that. God himself stepping into his creation, becoming like us. God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. A very literal translation of that is he tabernacled among us, that he pitched his tents, that he set up camp with us, that he now moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson said, that God has stepped in, taken on flesh like us, and now he moved in and he lives next door, that he's right here with us. The word, what gives all of life meaning and purpose, the creator and the sustainer of all things is now here with us. This is Emmanuel, which means God with us, that Jesus has stepped in, and this is glory. We have beheld his glory. We see Jesus, and we behold the glory of God. We see him in his glory, full of grace and truth. And John is making a contrast here when he says that we have seen him in this way, and this is grace upon grace in contrast to Moses and the law. That from Moses we receive the law, and so from Moses we get what's known as the law or the, the Ten Commandments, and then there's actually 613 odd commandments. Or these are things that you're to observe, not to do, to do, all this kind of stuff, and it's going to help regulate life and bring about flourishing and all this stuff, but really it's an expression of God's holiness, and it's a way for us to see this is what it would look like for us to walk in righteousness. And yet what does it show us? Like an x-ray machine, it shows us that we are broken, and we cannot do it. But like an x-ray machine can show you that the bone is broken, it can do nothing to save you or fix it. And so we need a salvation outside of ourselves. The law shows us there's nothing in us that can save us. But it shows us just painfully and pointedly that we need a salvation from outside God to do something for us and his grace and his mercy. And here comes Jesus, the word, co-eternal, co-equal with God, the Father and the Spirit. And he steps into humanity. He says, I'm here as grace upon grace to be our salvation. 
This is the gospel. This is the good news. We could never be good enough. We could never earn a right standing with God. We deserve wrath. We deserve condemnation. We deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity, despite the fact that we are created to be with him forever. And he rightly, justly could condemn all of us, but he is so merciful. He is so gracious. He's so compassionate that he says, I still love you and I choose you and I'm coming for you. And so this is Jesus, God himself, stepping into the story and saying, I'm here for you and you're mine. Not the will of man or the flesh, but the will of God that he would step in when we had nothing we could do for ourselves and he comes in and says, I'm here for you because I love you. Jesus shows up grace upon grace when we could not save ourselves. We need desperately to be forgiven. We need desperately to be cleansed. He comes in and he gives us his righteousness and he forgives us of our sins and he takes the just penalty on himself. He died the death that you and I deserve, but then he rose again victorious coming back to life and inviting us. He is the first fruit and we will follow him to live with him forevermore. He is our joy. He is our satisfaction. He is life. He is truth. He is the way. This is Jesus. And this is the good news that we must just turn from our sin, confess to be sinners and confess him to be Lord, believing in our hearts that he died, but he rose again. And this is our salvation, that God himself is our salvation. Jesus stepped in and he is our savior. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. There is nothing we can do to outsin His grace. There's nothing we can do to earn our way into His grace. That's why it is called grace, but it's undeserved favor. You cannot earn it, but He gives it freely, freely to us, but at the great cost of His own life for Him. Dane Ortland, he said it like this in considering the gospel. He said, God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls, those places we are most ashamed, most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the place where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost and he saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. Our sinning goes to the uttermost, but his saving goes to the uttermost. And his saving always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because he is always living to intercede for us. This is Jesus that we celebrate as a baby. But this is Jesus who, yes, came into this world as a baby, but he came so that he could grow up and he could die. He could pour out his life for you and I in love. This is grace upon grace. This is Jesus. This is God himself full of glory that we behold his glory. This is the wonder of Christmas. And I want you to see this. Like What it really comes down to is that Jesus came to actually be with us. I hope, I hope that tonight and tomorrow and for the rest of your life, you can just be utterly undone by the fact that God would want to be with us. The God who created the cosmos says, I want to be with you, with you. Jesus came to be with us. He wanted to be with us. The greatest gift that could ever be given is God himself, and that is the gift that we have in Jesus. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. This gift, there is nothing greater that God could give than himself because there is nothing greater than God. And he gives us himself. 
Do you see the joy of that? The wonder of that? That God wants to be with me. It's amazing. He wants to be with you. Oh, the joy of this. And do you know what that was like for him? Look at verse 18 as John continues. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. There's a lot of anticipation with Christmas. Like, what are, what are we going to get? And my kids are so stoked about the presents under the tree. And like, there's, a, there's this huge part of me that's like, oh, like, temper it a little, like, get, it, get some excitement, but like, let's, let's tone that a little just because I don't want you to be disappointed. But like, like get excited. You know, you're, you're kind of walking that line. You don't want to let anybody down, but like, the anticipation is often in life so much more than the actual encounter or experience. And that's so much of what I'm doing as a parent, and you know this if you're a parent, is like I'm trying to just correct their expectations of things, like the buildup of something. Because anticipation is, is really just the emotional pleasure or pain that's experienced in thinking of future potentials. So if, it, if it's just the, the emotional pain or pleasure of thinking of what a future potential could be, this is actually a healthy thing because this helps us to prepare for possibilities that we're going to encounter. And yet, so much of my life is trying to correct what I'm anticipating. So much of parenting is convincing my kids it's not that big of a deal. Just relax. Let's calm down. There's a time and a place to make it a big deal. This is not a big deal. And yet, here is Jesus, who has always been God and has been with God the Father at his side. Yet he knows he's about to step down into this mess. Why would God send his son, into this? Why would Jesus, also omniscient, knowing all things, why would he step into this? Because this is not cosmic child abuse. It's not this weird pie-in-the-sky father saying like, you son, you're going to go clean this mess up. No, he came willingly and actually joyfully. Why would they come into this? So that we could be at his side. And that is why. So that we could be at his side. Look at verse 18 with me. Like, look at the text. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. The God was not okay with us not knowing him. And so God the Son, who is at the Father's side, stepped in. He came to us to reveal God to us. He wanted us at his side. Like Jesus was at the Father's side. He wanted us at his side. And so I want to show something in this gospel as we continue to unpack and we're going to walk through this gospel. But I want you to see something so beautiful. We looked at the structure last week briefly of how this is the prologue in chapter one. So you've got the prologue and then you have the book of signs, the first 12 chapters, and then you have the book of glory leading up to chapter 20 and 21. And then you have this epilogue. It's kind of like story that's tacked on to the end of it when you thought it was concluding. And so as we look at this, it's introduced here with this language that who is himself God and is at the Father's side, those words show up again in this gospel. In the very middle of it, in chapter 13, we're going to see there's this, there's this point when they're in the upper room. This is Jesus and his closest friends, the disciples. He's 30, 33 years old at this point. And he's spent about three years now walking around proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand and telling people to repent and to trust him. He's forgiven sins. He's healed the lame. He's cast out demons. He's done miraculous things. He's walked on water. He's done amazing things that no one has ever seen before. 
And his closest friends are gathered together, and he tells them, hey, we're going to go, and we're going to have this meal together. And they're like, oh, it's Passover. Like, this, is a, this is a tradition that we do. And so we know, what, we know what to expect. They come together, and they're anticipating Passover. And they show up at this host's home, and they go up into this upper room, and the disciples are all there. And so in context, what would happen is there's likely a, a Roman triclinium, which is this table that's kind of in a big U-shape. It's in a U-shape because the servant could walk into the middle and serve everybody, and you could kind of look around, talk to everybody, but they didn't have chairs. There's not a lot of wood in ancient Palestine, and so the tables would be low-lying tables, and you would actually recline at the table. And so because most people are right-hand dominant, you would lie down on your left side, supporting your weight with your left hand, and then you'd be able to use your right hand as you reach across, grab food, converse, all that kind of stuff. And so you have Jesus and his closest friends reclined around this table. The other thing that this does is it puts your feet away from the table because they're wearing sandals at best. They didn't have concrete. It's nasty. And so get your stinky feet away from the food, guys. And so imagine, they're in this room. They're all laid out with their feet away from the table. But one of the things that you would do, just proper etiquette, what's expected in this day and age, is there would be a servant. Someone would be assigned the role of the servant, and that servant would have water, and they would come around and they would clean everyone's feet. About to eat. Get rid of your stinky feet. Here's the guy who's going to wash your feet. They show up at this meal. There's no servant. And so they just go to town. They're eating. You imagine just eating away. Like, I guess we're just going to have stinky feet for this meal. That's all right. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus, the word who was with God and was God and took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the creator of all things, sits up and takes off his outer garment, gets a bowl of water, and makes his way around the room, washing all of his disciples' feet. The creator of all things, getting his fingers disgusting, wiping between the toes of his closest friends. Because no one else in the room was going to be a servant, and he says, I'll serve you. And it's in that context he says things like, now you're going to love each other like I've loved you. You see what I just did there? Now you're going to do that for each other. That's how the world's going to know that you follow me. Nothing grandiose. If anyone has right to stand up and say, do what I say, it's him. But instead, he lowers himself, he humbles himself, and serves them all in a way that would make us so uncomfortable and clearly made them uncomfortable. But then it comes back, and like, this has just happened. You can imagine, like, the tension in the room, like, what's that? I feel really bad, like a super guilty conscience right now. I should have cleaned everyone's feet, definitely his feet. Like, this is so weird. And as he sits down, he starts to say some troubling things about somebody betraying him. Like, what? So, someone, who could betray him after that? Everything we've seen, and then he does this. Who could betray him? As you imagine, the, the room just kind of eyes all darting around, like, who could it be? We pick up in verse 21 of chapter 13. It says, when Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was who was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? If we go into the original language here, not to geek out on you too much, but this is so important to see. 
this disciple, one of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, he won't call himself by name. He just refers to himself as the one Jesus loved or the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We hear that throughout this book. It's the author of this book. That's how he will speak of himself. He will only speak of himself as one who is loved by Jesus. But you know what he says there? He was reclining close beside Jesus. It's actually the same language that's used back in chapter 1 that we just read. Where was Jesus? The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. It's the same language there. But now you have John the Apostle who apparently was just to the right of Jesus. So whereas Jesus would be lying on his left side, John would be right here in front of him. And Peter would apparently be across the table. And Peter, always the first to speak, gets the attention of John and says, yeah, you got to ask him about this. Let's, let's clear something up. Who is it? And so John leans back into the chest of Jesus. At his side, he leans back into the chest of Jesus. And we have to see how significant this moment was for him. That it stuck with him. That he will only call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this moment stuck with him so much that it shows up again in the epilogue. At the end of the book, John says this again. He talks about himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, this beloved disciple. He says this. He says, so Peter turned around. This is another story at the end. And saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. There it is, his self-reference. The one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? That it stuck so much with John, this moment where he reclined back into Jesus, that he thought, that's who I am. The one who is loved by him, the one who got to lean into the bosom, the chest of Jesus, the one who is at his side, that's who I am. That's what will mark me. If I talk about who I am, I'm the one that he loves. I'm the one at his side. And so you see this beautiful paradigm. It's, it's actually almost, I would argue, an inclusio, which is this technical term for how he's bracketed the entire book with these words. That at the beginning, it's Jesus, the Son of God, who's at the Father's side. And at the end, it's me, his beloved disciple, and I'm at his side. And so you bring them together. And in the middle of the book is where he's introduced. This is how now I'm at his side because he just served me. He lays down his life for me and it brings me to the side of the Father. This is what God wants. He wants us to be with him. And if that can so just sink into us, that this is the desire of God, this is the heart of God, that when you lean into the chest of Jesus, when you encounter him, when you live close to him, and you actually hear his heartbeat, like John, to lean back into his chest of God himself, and to hear the thump, 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 and to know that heart, that heart beats for me. This is the heart that beats for me. He loves me. And he wants me to be right here with him. And he came so that I could be here with him. This is the, the miracle of Christmas that God wants us to be with him, to be with him forever. And he would do that. And he would come and you could hear his heart in that. The same heart that is beating for you now in love. The same heart that is breaking for you in love right now. This same heart that was broken and crushed, nailed to a cross and a spear thrust through his side and piercing his heart so that water and blood would flow out and that would be your cleansing, that would be your salvation to wash away all the sin. And that same heart that would be in a tomb and on the third day, all of a sudden it would start beating again with life as Jesus would rise up 
having taken on human flesh. And now forever, forever, the word, God himself, will be in flesh and he will be with us. And one day he'll stand before us and he's going to wipe tears away from our eyes. And we're going to see nail-scarred hands, but he's going to be so glorious. He wants us to be with him. He wants you to be with him. So how do we respond to this good news? That God wants us to be with him. That we, like John, could be so utterly convinced that God loves me and he wants me to be with him that I'll stop even referring to myself as Kevin and just, hey, I'm just the beloved disciple of Jesus. I'm the one who gets to be with him. I have this unique position. No matter what's going on in life, I'm with God. Nothing else can faze me. I'm loved by God. How can we come to this unshakable confidence that that is who I am? What do we do? We look back into the text. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. This is a relational recognition. The old King James Version would say, did not know him the same way that Adam and Eve knew each other and it resulted in offspring, that there's this intimacy. It's a relational intimacy, that the world did not recognize him intimately. They did not have a relationship with him. He came to his own, the Jews. His own people did not receive him. The ones who were given the promises, the covenants, the ones from which he would actually come, this is where we would find the Messiah from Israel. And yet they reject him. But to all who did receive him. Who? All. All who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. And who is it? To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. It does not matter what pedigree you have. I don't care, and God does not care what your resume says. We do not care what your family is, what your past is, what you did five minutes before you stepped out of your house and you drove here. It does not matter in the economy of God. What matters is, do you believe him? Do you know him? He knows you and he loves you. So will you believe him? Will you believe this good news that there's a God who wants to be with you? The eternal God. Those who were born of God are those who believe in his name. So will you believe in his name? I want to ask. Skeptic, you don't know if any of this is real. What, what wild claims to say that God would create all things, this mess that we have made, and he would still love it and step into it and provide a way for there to be salvation, for him to make all things new, to set things right, and to come at the cost of his own life. Will you believe this good news? Seeker, you're looking for truth. You want to know what is true. And Jesus says, ask, and the door will be open to you. Seek, and you will find you will find as he is the truth, he is life, he is the way. And Christian, you may be stumbling. You're just stuck in some sin. And do you know that he wants you to be with him? That he delights in coming to you so that you could be with him? And doubter, you believe this good news that at Christmas sometimes it can be actually dark and sad for many of us as you wrestle with the loss of things, whether that's real or just unrealized, your unmet dreams, goals, whatever it is. And it causes you to doubt. Do you believe this good news that there's a God who loves you and delights in being with you? 
He has come. Now, Christian, who do you need to share this good news with? This is a great opportunity to do so. So we share the good news that there's a God who loves us like this, who wants us to be with him. And now will you go and live your life like John, just leaning back into the chest of Jesus to hear the heartbeat of God. And the heartbeat of God says, I love you. You're mine. And I came here because I want to be with you. Will you pray with me? Father, you are so good to us. So we pray that you would be glorified. Jesus, we thank you that you, full of glory, that we could behold, you came to us to rescue us, but God, ultimately to bring us to yourself, to be at your side. Thank you. And Spirit, I ask that you would convict, that you would move and you would give the gift of faith, that if there are anyone here who does not know you, who does not have your salvation, that tonight they would see the truth that you are offering forgiveness and life everlasting, life to the full. And it's in you and you alone. So would you give them the gift of faith, open their eyes to see their hearts to be made new, to receive this salvation, to profess you as Lord, to trust you for salvation and no one else. We love you. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.